And now, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, uh, chapter 11 and verse 29. We'll be reading verse 29 down to the end of the chapter. Uh, for those of you visiting with us, we've been working through this book. We've come to the eighth judge, a man named Jephthah. And uh, we saw last week, uh, Jephthah uh, was sort of an outcast who was raised up uh, by God to, to this position, leading uh, them against the Ammonites who had invaded uh, this portion of Israel. And so before the battle, uh, Jephthah had engaged in some diplomacy, uh, arguing on his people's behalf for the rightness of their cause. And that did not uh, win uh, the approval of the Ammonites. They didn't agree. So now we've come to the battle. And uh, one of the more controversial passages in the book, because in the, you'll, as you'll see, uh, Jephthah makes a vow. Uh, that he then fulfills in association with this battle. So let's give attention uh, to God's word and may he teach us from it. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mitzpah of Gilead and from Mitzpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Aror as far as Mineth, twenty cities, and to Abel Karamim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mitzpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father. And he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to his people. Well, Netflix has a series on the Chicago Bulls professional basketball dynasty of the 1990s. And what's fascinating about that story is that uh, after the Bulls had won five NBA championships in seven years, the general manager who had built the team and uh, had, had experienced all that success announced 
that he was firing the coach and dismantling the team. And there was such an outcry that uh, they convinced him to let the team come back one more season. And they did, and they won the championship again. And then he dismantled the team and fired the coach. And it's an example of right at the height of his success after that fifth championship, he does something that made him an enemy of the people of Chicago. I didn't confirm with the Chicagoans we have here. I should ask about this. but uh, Very unpopular with the people of Chicago. Right in the midst of what should have been his greatest triumph. And we have something similar to that happening in this passage. Where right as Jephthah wins this incredible victory for God's people, freeing them from an 18-year oppression of the Ammonites, Jephthah does something seemingly that undoes all of the good in his life. It appears uh, that he, he, he undoes himself here by this vow that he makes. And we need to recognize that there is a lot of controversy or a lot of disagreement, I should say, about what actually happened in this passage. And there are many questions. Some uh, debate about the vow that he made. Was it, was it right or wrong for him to make the vow? And then there's debate about the motive of him making this vow. Was he trying to blackmail God? Was, was, was that what he was doing? Trying to uh, leverage God, bargaining with God to get what he wanted. Uh, and then on the other hand, was it sinful for him to keep the vow? And, and what did he actually do? And why is the text so obscure about what actually happens to his daughter uh, at the end when he comes back and completes his vow? I would say more importantly... Uh, questions like why does why is this in the Bible and what does it have to do with us and and uh, and and how does it apply to our circumstances? So my hope is that as we look at the passage together this morning, we'll try to answer those questions. Most importantly, the why it's important for us question. But what I I'm going to try to argue here is that Jephthah was a godly and zealous servant of the Lord. And that what we see here is God overturning some of Jephthah's plans uh, to accomplish God's purposes that are at odds with what Jephthah's trying to do here. And this is actually something that God does in all of our lives and something that we should be very thankful for. That sometimes our plans are not good, and God is faithful to overturn our plans for our sake so that His glory will be most displayed in the world. So that's what we're going to see as we look at the passage. And children, if you're going to draw a picture, maybe draw a picture of Jephthah's daughter and uh, her friends. And uh, let's listen and hear if, we can, uh, if you can see what God does in her life, what happens to her. Well, there is an outline in the bulletin, and you'll see there, the first thing we want to notice is that your only hope of accomplishing God's will in your life is the enabling of His Holy Spirit. So verse 29 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. 
Uh, Jephthah, the, the, la- the passage last week ended with Jephthah appealing to God to judge rightly. And then immediately we see Jephthah empowered. This is a sure sign that Jephthah is the man God has chosen to lead his people against the Ammonites. And, and notice what he does then uh, in, in verse 29. It says that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mitzvah of Gilead. And so quickly he's a man of action. And if you look at the little map that I gave you, you can see here, here's the nation of Ammon. And Ammon had invaded in here this section called Gilead, which passes over Manasseh and Gad, these, these tribes that are on the eastern side of the Jordan. And so the Ammonites have come into their land and he had tried to argue that they should go out. They said no. So now he's moving through. He's, what he's doing now is, is recruiting his army and he's encouraging his army. He's boosting their morale and they're getting ready for this battle as he moves. And we must remember that, that we've already been told in the text that Jephthah was a gifted man. God called him a mighty man of valor when this whole story began. He was a man that gathered people to himself. We said he was a man who probably was a leading member of his clan before he had been ostracized by them. And so uh, he is gifted in his fighting ability as well as his leadership skills. But we have to realize the text is helping us see that is not enough. It's not enough that he's a gifted man. Matthew Henry writing about this, and these quotations are in the bulletin. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and very much advanced his natural faculties, enduring him, enduing him, sorry, with power from on high and making him more bold and more wise than ever he had been and more fired with the holy zeal against the enemies of his people. Hereby God confirmed him in his office and assured him of success in his undertaking. And that's very well said. God's Spirit comes upon him and he has greater boldness, greater wisdom, greater zeal, and greater confidence that God has called him to this work. And I think this is helpful because it's tempting for us to think that, well, yes, God has given us certain natural abilities. And then it's my job to improve those abilities. It's my job to uh, use those abilities. It's sort of all down to me. Uh, But this is reminding you it's never down to you. If it ever is, we're all in big trouble That God not only has given you your gifts, but God enables you to use your gifts. And you need the enabling of God's Spirit to do what God is calling you to do every day. And it's not just, I think some of us think, well, I need God's Spirit to keep me from sinning. Uh, That I need His help with. But no, you need His help to do what you're supposed to be doing each day. Whether you're at home trying to raise kids, whether you're out working in the community, whether you're a student studying, you need the Spirit of God helping you to do what God has given you to do. And this is one reason why we should all be praying every day, Lord, send your Spirit to work in my life. That we need the Spirit working with us so that we would be greater in boldness, wisdom, zeal, and confidence. So the text reminds us our only hope of accomplishing God's will is the power of His Spirit. Secondly, we also see here that committing yourself wholeheartedly to God's service is is actually your calling as a believer. So uh, verse 30 tells us the army is gathered and then uh, they advance 
on uh, on Gideon. Uh, sorry, on Ammon. On the uh, Gideon advances with them on the people of Ammon, and you can see in your map how they actually go into the Ammonite territory and begin to push them away and take back. Uh, their land and also subdue uh, the Ammonites. But you notice here that he then makes a vow in verse 30. It tells us that Jephthah made a vow. And he says in his vow, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's. I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now the translation says burnt offering. The text actually, the the word in the Hebrew means a whole offering. And typically when that was given, the entire entire animal was burned up. None of it was left over uh, for the people to eat. Uh, It was a whole offering. And that's what he says. Now uh, this is where the the debates with the commentators begin. Most commentators commentators take a very dim view of this vow. It was rash. It was ill-advised. It was an effort to manipulate God. It was a a desperation because he's afraid and um, he lacks the faith he needs. Or even more creatively, it is the result of a traumatic past I put one example. I didn't want to. I don't like to put examples of people I disagree with in, but I thought one would suffice from Barry Webb. The vow, though, takes a much takes us much deeper into Jephthah's psyche, and shows us a man still haunted by his past. So there's the idea: a troubling past is leading to this. One commentator I didn't quote here uh, summarizes this as hurt people hurt people. Uh, so this is because uh, you know he had a, a rough upbringing, and he's just taking this out. On his daughter. I don't think there's anything in the text that supports that view. Um, There's no criticism in the text of this vow whatsoever. And I think we have to realize that making vows is, in fact, something that we're told to do repeatedly in Scripture. Every psalm that we've sung so far today in worship has included a call to make vows to the Lord. Uh, I, I put one example in your outline, Psalm 76.11. Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around Him bring presents to Him who ought to be feared. Vows are an important part of worship. Now, in the sacrificial system, there were these uh, sort of required sacrifices that were needed. And so in, in cases of sin and certain uh, uncleanliness, there had to be... Uh, sacrifices made. But on top of that, there were what are called occasional vows. So people on the occasion of some great deliverance or something that God had done would make a promise uh, to worship God in a particular way. And these are what are in view. Uh, so to give a modern example of this, so when, when um, my wife and I, Amy, were expecting, well, Amy was really the one doing all the hard work, we know that. But when we were expecting a child, I committed myself uh, that I would spend one day a week fasting and praying specifically for the spiritual and physical health of that child and do that throughout the whole pregnancy. And then when the baby was born, we were, were committed to giving a special donation, a gift above and beyond what we normally gave in thanks for God's blessing. And that was a gift I was thrilled to be able to make four times. Now, is that 
bargaining with God? Is that lack of faith? Is that manipulating God? This, this is what we do as an expression of our total dependence on God and our desire to see God honored. Here's a man who understands he cannot win without God. He's praying. And he's making this commitment, God, I will offer to you. Now this is what, you know, you might criticize him on this point, right? Well, he didn't know exactly what he was offering. That was unwise, right? I don't know. Because I feel like the way he's constructed this vow, he's putting it in God's hands. He's saying, Lord, whatever you choose to take, that I'm willing to give as I seek to serve you. Here's what Matthew Henry says about this. And Matthew Henry is not a fan of Jephthah's. But look at what he says about the vow. That yet, that yet it is very good when we are in the pursuit or expectation of any mercy to make vows to God of some instance of acceptable service to Him. Not as a purchase of the favor we desire, but as an expression of our gratitude to Him and the deep sense we have of our obligations to render according to the benefit done us. And there are many scriptural examples of this. Jacob, when he's leaving, he's fleeing from his brother Esau and he's going uh, off away from his family. He vows, Lord, if you bring me back in safety, I will give you 10% of all that I have. This is the kind of thing faithful servants do who are given over to serving the Lord. I know some of you have read the autobiography of Reformed Presbyterian missionary John G. Payton who in the 1800s went to the Pacific Islands to serve cannibals and gave up every comfort, every uh, life of ease that he could have had, his health, his safety. He gave up everything. And when he finally landed on the place he served first, and within the first few months, his pregnant wife... And then his son who was born both died of malaria. He said, the Lord gave me the best he had. He gave me his son, Jesus. And so, I willingly give him the best I have, everything I have. And many people would have turned back at that point, but he served the Lord throughout the rest of his days and saw great revival happen ultimately amongst these cannibals. But this is the call. This is what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So I'm maybe this is a mind-bender for you, but I'm encouraging us to view Jephthah in this spirit. As one who knows that he, one who's filled with the Spirit, we know that. One who knows he needs God's blessing to succeed, and who is saying to the Lord, Take from me whatever you want, as you use me to accomplish your purposes. And committing wholeheartedly to God, this is what we are all called to do as Christians. Thirdly, we see here that God does work through his flawed servants to fulfill his plans. 
So here's where I was getting ahead of myself a minute ago. Jephthah advances toward the people of Ammon. Verse 32. And he wins a decisive victory. The Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them. Again, you can look at the map. He defeats them from where they are in Israelite territory. He goes into Ammon and defeats. It says he takes 20 cities as he goes in through Mineth and all the way to Abel Karamim. And um, he subdues them. He doesn't try to take over Ammon. He's not conquering Ammon. He's just beating them back and getting them so that they're not going to bother God's people anymore for a while. Now, of course, if, uh, if Peter Jackson were to get hold of this story, the director of all the, Lords of the Lord of the Rings series, this, would, this verse or two would be an hour at least. How do you go in and take 20 cities, right? But that, it's fascinating. In this text, that's all it is. He advanced against them and the Lord delivered them. That's all that we're given. We would like more. And the reason we're only given this much is because the important thing isn't uh, the valor, the bravery, the fighting skills, all the tactics and all those things, which undoubtedly were important. But that's not the key thing here. The key thing here is it's God. The Lord is the one who defeated them. The Lord is the one who gave them the victory. And that's very clear in the text. And this, again, is an encouragement to you and me. Because whatever weaknesses Jephthah has, and he has them, we're going to come to that in a minute, those weaknesses were not an impediment for God to accomplish His purposes through Jephthah. And and that is a message we need to be reminded of again and again. God works through flawed people. Flawed people just like you, just like me. It's really easy for us to see our weaknesses and to say, that disqualifies me, I'm not good at this, I'm not good at that, I'm nervous about this. God doesn't see it that way. In fact, the Bible says it's just the opposite. Oftentimes, the greatest display of God's power is when He uses people who are unworthy. Uh, People like us, as we said. Uh, This is what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 and 7. For it is the God who who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of God. Of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. What an encouragement that your flaws are actually the context for God's glory to shine through as He accomplishes His good work through you. And Jephthah was such a man. God did a great work through this flawed servant. And that's how God works. But fourthly, we see here that God sovereignly intervenes to protect His church. So, as soon as the victory is won, the Jephthah story seems to come crashing to the ground. Because we're told in verse 34 that Jephthah comes back to his house and there finds his daughter coming out to meet him. We don't know for sure what he was expecting. Was he expecting some animal? There's some evidence in the text that he might have been expecting a person, uh, right? Animals don't typically come out and greet people. 
but if he was expecting a person, he certainly wasn't expecting his wife. He was ex- or his daughter, sorry. Hey, maybe he was expecting his wife. I don't know. He was. Ex- I was going to say his servant, right? He was expecting one of his servants, um, and that's not what he gets. His daughter comes out as would be the case when the army comes back from a victory, right? Singing and praising and celebrating the victory. And, uh, and, and that's exactly the picture we have here. And so Jephthah is despondent. He tears his robe. My daughter, you, you've troubled me. I've made this vow. And uh, look at her beautiful response. My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth because the Lord has avenged you on your enemies. And so uh, she tells him to keep his vow. And he's, he's committed uh, to keeping his vow. He prayed. He, he made this vow. And now keeping the vow is the way you thank God for answering your prayers. I put a, an example of this, Deuteronomy 12, verse 6. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So his daughter then asks, Father, let me have a couple of months to go with my friends and bewail my virginity. And uh, so she goes, and then at the end of this time, she comes back, and it says that at the end of two months, she returned to the father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. And then we see it became a custom uh, to celebrate her sacrifice. Now, here's the question. What happened? What happened? And there are two main schools of thought here. Uh, the one school of thought is, well, he said he was going to make a whole offering, and so he must have sacrificed her. He must have slit her throat and burned her body. And uh, in full disclosure, that is the position of most of the commentators. And, and I, by that I mean good commentators. So of the 11 commentaries that I'm using regularly in preparation, eight of them uh, go with that view. Um, I've never been comfortable with that view, but having been forced to study it, uh, I favor the other view that the three commentators, including the one I found most helpful, have said, which is that he dedicates her to the Lord's service. And a part of that complete dedication is that she's not going to marry and she's not going to have children. And so the reason she's mourning her virginity for those months before she goes into service is because she's never going to have a family of her own. Uh, Kyle and Delich represent this view uh, in the quote that I put in there. The father fulfilled his vow upon her and she knew no man. That's what verse 39 says. He fulfilled the vow through the fact that she knew no man, but dedicated her life to the Lord as a spiritual burnt offering in a lifelong Chastity. So if that view is correct, then children, what happened to her was that she went and served at the tabernacle throughout her life and never had a family of her own. And this is why she spent some time lamenting before she entered into that service. Now, why do I think this? Come talk to me afterwards if you have questions. Let me just give you a few reasons. One is that this concept of redeeming humans uh, who are dedicated to the Lord is a biblical concept. 
Um, when God struck the firstborn children in Egypt, He spared all of the Israelite children. And so um, He said to them, all of the firstborn are Mine. They are Mine. So you must redeem them. And they could do that by giving money for it. Later, uh, God accepted all of the Levites as a substitute for those dedicated firstborn. I put an example of this from Numbers 8 uh, in your bulletin. For the Levites are wholly given to me from among the children of Israel. I have taken them for myself instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the children of Israel. For all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine, both man and beast. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them to myself. I've taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn of the children of Israel. So that's an established principle in the nation. Uh, In addition, as I said earlier, this term that's being translated burnt offering is really a whole offering. And if it was an animal that could be sacrificed, yes, it was burnt completely instead of part of it being eaten by the worshiper. But that was never done to human beings. Uh, Human beings would be given over completely uh, to the Lord in other ways. And one example of this is what Hannah does for her son Samuel. She prays for a child. And then when Samuel is born, she takes him and gives him to the Lord. That's the promise that she makes. Finally, uh, the text never tells us that he killed his daughter. But it does mention three times that she did not know a man or that she bewailed her virginity. And literally translating, I put an example from the New American Standard, which is probably a little more literal, uh, on verse 39. If you just let the text talk to us, it came about at the end of two months that she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made and she had no relations with a man. And it appears that this is her ongoing status. It's not, um, the ESV translates it like she's dead and this happened in the past, but that's because the ESV writers favor the first interpretation here. This, this version, the New King James 2, suggests she lives in perpetual virginity and the way he keeps his vow is by dedicating her to this service. Uh, finally, the last thing I would just say is, if he did kill her, that would make him a monster, first of all. But the book of Judges is not shy about telling us the foibles of the people in the book of Judges. And in the next few chapters, it's going to get really ugly. And there's absolutely no hesitation to tell us. And yet, for some reason, the author here doesn't tell us. And it suggests to me the reason he doesn't tell us is because it didn't actually happen. Uh, again, co- quoting from Kyle and Delich, it's evident that the author of the book of Judges does not conceal what is blamable even in the judges themselves. So I think she was dedicated to service. Now the question is, why? And why does it matter? And this goes back to what happened back when Jephthah was called to be the general. Jephthah was asked by the elders to come and be the general. And you remember what he did. He said, um, will I be your head? He wasn't content to just be their general. He wanted to be their ruler. And he negotiated that for himself, that he was going to be their ruler after this conflict. He was trying to set up a dynasty for himself. 
And that was something God did not want to happen. The king was not going to come from Manasseh. The king was going to come from Judah. So he had a little bit of a side project going on while he was leading this battle. And God said, no. And that's why he takes his daughter, his, and it's stressed in the text, she was his only child. And she's not going to have children. Jephthah's posterity are cut off. So he will not be able to establish a dynastic rule in Israel. And this is what he's doing. God sovereignly intervening to protect his church. And this is what God has committed himself to do. He, will, he doesn't promise to sustain and keep every individual congregation. But he has promised to keep his church in the world functioning to the end of time. And that's a tremendous encouragement to us. So God sovereignly intervenes to protect His church. And finally, God loves you and His church enough to overturn your plans for the sake of His own glory. Again, you notice there's something odd about Jephthah's vow in that he offers what comes out of his house. And typically, like if, the, if, if, if there's a battle coming and there's examples of this, the Israelites would have vowed to give the spoil or to give what they corporately won to the Lord. But he's making it very personal. That, that this, it sort of suggests that he has this personal agenda going along with this. He, he, is, he is trying to seek his own glory in some way. And his daughter's statement of faith is a striking contrast to this because she says she says what do in according to, do according to me what has gone out of your mouth because the Lord has avenged your enemies. And this nameless woman who in faith submits to this is celebrated and verse 40 tells us the daughters of Israel went out four days each year to lament. It doesn't actually, that word could mean celebrate. It just means to remember. To remember uh, the daughter of Jephthah. And so her sacrifice actually becomes a memorial of the great deliverance that God won for the people. And God gets the glory. And this is what should encourage you about this passage. Because you or I may make plans or may have ideas that we think are good, but that don't actually lead to the glory of God. God is absolutely determined to overturn your plans to accomplish His purposes. And I say this with some trepidation as a a group of us are meeting with our architect tomorrow and we're trying to figure out if it's possible to expand here, still talking about the possibility of another building in town or something else. And it's a great encouragement to me to know that if we come up with a plan that is not what God wants, He has ample opportunity to put the kibosh on it. So many things have to go right for this to happen that He can easily frustrate that. My dad uh, told me a story about when he was about 10, 11 years old. 
he and some buddies, they spent the summers on a lake. They got a wash tub that they sort of modified into a boat. And they decided, let's float on this wash tub. Uh, the lake they're on connected to another lake, and that connected to another lake that connected to a creek. And that creek ran all the way down from where they are, were in southern Michigan into Elkhart, Indiana. Let's float down to Elkhart, Indiana, and we'll surprise our parents. It's like 15 miles. 15 miles in, in a wash tub. So um, the boys disappeared. And then the adults are asking around. Thankfully, they must have told somebody. And the adults found out, and they intercepted them while they were still in the second lake, so before they got onto the creek. And it's a good thing that they did. Right? That's a blessing. And sometimes we're a lot like 10-year-old boys in terms of what looks good to us. What makes sense to us? What seems like it would be a good idea to us? And we should thank God that he looks over that and he intervenes to stop you from doing what might be very harmful to yourself or to his church. He loves you enough to intervene, to overturn your plans at times so that he can accomplish his own plans for his own glory. And isn't that exactly what he did in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because Jesus came uh, into the world and he was subject to all kinds of people telling him what he should be and how he should do. And it's quite striking that God gave him over uh, to his enemies so that Jesus, the only child of the Lord, was actually sacrificed and died. He said to his heavenly Father, whatever comes out of your mouth, I'll do it. And He was willing to be that sacrifice. And by doing that, he paid for the sins of all of us plan makers who uh, don't want to submit to God's will. And thank God He overcame our idea of how we're going to become righteous in God. We all have a plan for how we're going to be righteous and justify ourselves. And God overthrew that plan completely by sending His own Son to die in our place. So trust the Lord and thank Him that He loves you enough sometimes to interfere and to overthrow your plans so that His plans can be established and accomplished. Let's pray and we'll give him thanks. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and for this difficult passage. Lord, it's it's hard for us to fully grasp what's going on here. And we we pray uh, that we have been faithful with this text. Uh, I pray, Lord, if anything I've said here has been inaccurate, that you would reveal that to be the case. And we pray that in all of this we would see Uh, what's really going on. A man who was seeking to serve you, a man who was used by you, and yet a man who had uh, other aspirations and ideas uh, that didn't fit with your plans. And we thank you that you loved him enough to interfere and intervene and bring about your desired objective 
We thank you, Lord, that that's the case in our lives and that you have interfered with our efforts to seek our own righteousness. You have sent your Son, your only Son, and he has submitted himself to the ultimate penalty so that we could be forgiven and we could know you. We pray, Lord, you would help us to trust in him and that you would help us to be truly grateful when you love us enough to overthrow the plans that we make. We ask for your help to understand these things and apply them in this coming week. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we'll sing our praise back to the Lord from Psalm 116, Selection B. We thank the Lord. The question, uh, it asks a, a question here, a rhetorical question. How do I thank the Lord for all His benefits? We reflect on all that the Lord has done for us. And the answer is, I will raise salvation's cup and I will call on the Lord's name. And then, uh, as we see here, there is a commitment uh, to keep our vows and to obey Him as we seek to thank Him for His grace. So let's stand and we'll sing Psalm 116, Selection B.